0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Today, surprise, surprise, we're in the book of Jude (laughs) still. And we will be... (laughs) We will be here for a while. Um, today we've trying to decide what I want to do here. You know what? Let me, I'm just gonna um, read, we're gonna look at verses five through seven today. I know we're jet touring through this, but bear with me. So um we're gonna start at verse five. And I'm just gonna read what we're gonna cover today, and then I'll pray. Now I want to remind you though you know everything once and for all that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt subsequently though I'm sorry subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper dwelling place these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these angels indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather today to be in your word, and Lord, um, as always, let the messenger step aside and, and not get in the way of your message. And Lord, let this um, these truths we're going to cover here penetrate our hearts and change us to make us more holy for your glory. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to be together. I thank you for the love we have for each other here. In your name we pray, amen. The last few weeks we've opened up the first four verses of Jude. In our first message, we looked at who wrote Jude, when it was written, to whom it was written, and the reason it was written. In our second message, we looked at verses 1 and 2 and covered the characteristics of being a bond slave of Christ and our position in Christ. We are the called, beloved, and kept. We also saw, as a result of these truths, God had showered us with mercy, peace, and love. Then in our third message, we looked at what it means to contend for the faith. That we, the true body of Christ, are to contend for the objective faith of Scripture. We looked at the marks of the apostates given in verse 4, lives that were marked by licentiousness and a denial of Christ's lordship. We can make a long list of false teachers that are roaming in the church today. Some add to scripture and some have visions and dreams that are supposedly from God, while others deconstruct orthodox Christianity in subtle and sometimes blatant ways such as twisting or discounting scripture. This has always been the case. If we look back to the time of the Reformation, we see men that contended for the faith, for justification by faith alone. Then moving closer to our time, we see Charles Spurgeon fight for the faith in the downgrade controversy. Later we see men fight for the faith in the lordship controversy. Today we are fighting for holy sexuality among other heretical views. So this is something that the church has always had to deal with. So let's start this morning at the first part of verse 5 in our text. And it says, Now I I want to remind you, though you know everything once for all, and that's all we're going to cover right now, This is not to say that these people have full knowledge of everything, but rather it connects back to the faith that Jude talks about in verse 3. They knew the gospel. It had been preached to them, and they received it. This would also include Old Testament scriptures that contain the three historical examples that Jude is about to give us. Jude uses a positive tone here, thinking the best of the reader's, and uses a gentle reminder to bring these examples back into focus in their minds. Many times we need to be reminded of truth. We can be forgetful hearers and doers. We can allow the world to drown out truth, and therefore we need faithful pastors and elders that work hard in study, prayer, and meditation on his word to bring his truth to us each week. I am thankful that we have men here at Cornerstone that work hard to shepherd us. Women, this doesn't leave you out. You have a responsibility. Though you're not called to be an elder or a pastor, um, regardless of what a certain person in California says who is continuing to try to undermine that doctrine, Um, And thankfully, the SBC kicked them out. So at least we have one positive thing about the SBC that happened. Um, But you do have a responsibility, women, and that is to each other, to come alongside each other and help each other grow in the word. John Calvin said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away wolves. As a side note, this is why we need to be praying for our leaders here at Cornerstone. Their business is one of eternal consequences and they need to stand firm without wavering or slipping and doing two things. Building us up in our faith and guarding over us to protect us from false teaching. So let's continue on here in verses five to seven we have three illustrations drawn from history that this body of Christ would be familiar with. All three of these historical events are cited not only in scripture, but also in extra biblical literature as well. These three illustrations show how God deals with apostates regardless of their heritage, ethnic group, or privileges. The three illustrations Jude uses are the unbelief of Israel, the rebellious angels, and the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. These show three past judgments of God on spiritual rebellion. Let's look at our first illustration, the Israelites. In the latter part of verse 5, it says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. This is one of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament. Both Christians and non-Christians know this story. It is documented for us in Exodus 6 through 14. The children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. Here in our text, we see two basic things, two facts. First, that God delivered them out of the land of Egypt. God never forgot his promise to Israel. And the second thing we see is that God, who, that God who delivered them out of Egypt would also destroy those that did not believe, so they never entered the promised land. Though the exodus out of Egypt was great and glorious, for most this would end in destruction because of their unbelief. They began grumbling and questioning God's power. The Israelites were mar- marked by idolatry, grumblings against God, putting God to the test, and sexual immorality. The Israelites thought that they were God's people, but they were not the true Israel. Their disobedience demonstrated that they were not his spiritually. They did not trust God in his promises. In Numbers 14:22 through 24 we read this, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which i performed in egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which i swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurn me see it but my servant caleb because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. They knew about God, saw the great plagues God brought upon Egypt. They experienced his preservation of them through the Passover, witnessed the drowning of the great Egyptian army, which, and they were fed in the wilderness. And even their clothes did not wear out, yet they rebelled against him. Unless God extends mercy to a person, their heart will just become more hardened. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13 said this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were writ- written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will know, so that you will be able to endure it. Is this mic messing up here? I'm trying to. I can go get mine. Okay, let me see. There you go. That's probably better. The Apostle Paul gives us. Well, oh, that's way better. <laughs> it's okay. The Apostle Paul gave us warnings here not to be like these faithless rebellious israelites who were idolaters immoral and grumblers that refused god's best we have the whole of scripture to instruct us as paul says here they were written for our instruction so let us take seriously the warnings jude is giving us here Some would say it is not fair that God caused the Israelites to wander and die out and not enter the promised land. But what is not fair is that for the creation to dictate to the creator what is right or wrong. He has no obligation to show any grace or mercy to those that rebel against him. To get a picture of how great this judgment was on Israel, consider that in Numbers 1, it says there were 603,550 males from age 20 and up. So if you do some math, it was probably about 1.2 million people, including women, that died in the wilderness. That ends up being about 90 deaths a day. But God still showed mercy to the children of Israel by not wiping them all out immediately and also by keeping a promise and making them a great nation by sparing anyone from 19 years and younger. Numbers 14.31 shows, um, shows us that God keeps his covenant promise. It says this, Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected." The disobedient Israelites accused God of bringing them all out of Egypt to only lose their lives in the desert. But God makes it clear here that their thoughts of God was not what God intended. When we are given warnings by God about our sin, do we believe and repent of those sins and turn back to him, or do we rebel like the children of Israel? Jude's point is that just as the faithless Israelites who grumbled and question God's goodness were destroyed so will these faithless rebellious false professors be destroyed our second illustration is the angels now in verse 6 we read and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper dwelling place these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the day the judgment of the great day The second example is angels that did not keep their own domain. This is a reference to the angels that sinned in Genesis 6, 1 through 3. Here are some observations we can make from our passage. First, these angels did not keep their own domain. God had created these angels and given them a position of authority and dignity in that position. They moved out of that in an act of rebellion. Secondly, these angels abandoned their proper dwelling. God had placed them in an exalted position around his throne. They were in a place of harmony and peace as they were fulfilling the role God had given them. They deliberately rebelled. And our final observation is these angels came down to earth, which was an inappropriate place for them to be to indulge in sexual immorality. This sin was sexual relations with the daughters of men. So how do we understand this more? How did the angels have sexual relations with women on earth? Some interpreters see the angels as some kind of superhumans and they were not angels. There also may be an objection raised that in Matthew 22 verse 30 the angels are asexual. But Matthew actually just says that they are not married or given in marriage. But when angels come to earth, they often come in human form. So it is more understandable that these angels, when they came on earth, came as humans. This is not a manifestation, but a real body which would function as our bodies do. The angels came in the form of men to get Lot out of Sodom before its destruction. So it's very plausible that was the case with these that had sexual relations with women. These apostate angels went after strange flesh. In verse 7 of Jude here it says, Since they, in the same way as these angels, indulge in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh. These angels were out of sync with the nature God created them with. They not only abandoned their position and their dwelling, but they also went after those that were not of their kind. This is not the way God designed it. They did not keep in their proper sphere, and now God has kept them in eternal darkness. Here we read that they are kept in eternal restraints, and some other translations use the word chains. This is not literal, but rather shows the misery of their condition. They once had power in a lofty position, but now they are confined and powerless, They once were to keep and protect and guard their own position, and now they are kept and guarded in the place of darkness waiting for final judgment. Their current imprisonment is temporal as they wait for the final judgment. There is a day of judgment for all, and all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Those that are elect in Christ will not be under his justice, but rather under his grace and mercy and will not experience hell. Not based on us, but based on Christ's perfect life for us and his death that took away the guilt and condemnation of our sins. God, because of the great sin on the earth, brought a great flood that destroyed all on earth except for Noah and his family. This event is partly tied to these angels who left their proper or bold, and all the creation that was in the human race. In Genesis 3:13, we read, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth." The warning here is that just as these angels usurped their place and went outside of God's design and will eventually be put in eternal judgment, so is the fate and future of the apostates he's writing about. And then our third illustration is Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 7 we read, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these angels indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal hell. This story is told in Genesis 18 and 19. We all probably know this story. God sent angels in the form of men to Lot. Lot lived in the city of Sodom. On the way to Sodom, the angels had one stop to make first, a divine appointment. These three angels had a prophecy for Abraham and Sarah. Abraham invites them to refresh themselves with food and rest. And Sarah was 90 years old and still without child. And any woman in here knows that 90 years old is beyond bearing years. The angels declare to them that they will have a child within a year. Abraham and Sarah both find it hard to believe that that will happen, but the Lord answers their doubt in verse 14 of Genesis 18 and says this, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you and at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The reason I share this is just to show you that God's faithfulness to His promises to make Abraham a great nation, it will not be through his illegitimate son Ishmael, or nor will it be through Lot, his nephew, or anyone else, but rather through the loins of Abraham and Sarah will conceive Isaac as God promised. Now these angels head to Sodom. And they are taken in by Lot, knowing the wickedness of the people he lives among, he wants nothing to happen to them. Lot took these angels into his home, but the men of Sodom surrounded the house. This was not a small crowd either. Genesis 19.4 says, both young and old, all people from every quarter surrounded the house. They wanted to have sexual relations with these angels. The angels struck the men of Sodom with blindness, but that did not stop them from still trying to get at them. And in verse 11 of Genesis 19, it says they became weary of trying to find the doorway. That's just incredible to think about. You're struck with blindness, and you're still trying to, oh, man, trying to do your sin. These men had no fear of God, no regard for the natural order that God designed it to be. Just as the angels abandoned their natural order and committed sexual sin with women, so the sodomites abandoned their natural order of marriage and sexual union between a man and a woman. This is the meaning of strange flesh. That is that is not how God designed it to be. In Romans one twenty-six and 27, it says, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males, committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. As mentioned last week, we see a visible church accepting sexual sin, including homosexuality, as okay for Christians. The latest evil twist is that many churches say that as long as you are monogamous in your homosexual relationship, you are good with God. And if you don't believe me, just Google it. You will be shocked of what's going on. Or they also say it is okay to have sinful desires as long as you don't act upon them. That is not true. Christ said, if you think it, you have done it. He demands our desires to line up with what his word says in all areas of our life, including our sexuality. Here is a statement from a pro-homosexual supposed Christian about the Apostle Paul. And this blew me away when I read this. I was like, is this a parody or what? This is what he said. Struggle against his own homosexual desires in an intolerant society society may have inspired Paul the Apostle to write sublime teachings on unconditional love and inclusivity. (laughs) It's just hard to believe anybody would write that. You see here how this person has twisted the scripture and even attributed sexual sin to Paul? Paul's teaching on love and inclusivity had nothing to do with a sexual issue at all. This type of thinking is taking hold more and more in the visible church. These false teachers redefine what biblical love is in order to pursue their sin. The answer these false homosexual Christians give to why Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities surrounding it were destroyed would surprise you they use ezekiel 1649 and say that sodom and gomorrah was destroyed because of their arrogance and lack of care for the poor and needy well this fits really well with the social justice movement that has not only swept the nation but has crept into the, I, sh, I shouldn't even use the word crept into the church it is jetted into the church these liberal people that masquerade as supposed Christians are far more concerned about inclusiveness and their form of justice rather than what God's word says. They show themselves to be the same apostates as Jude was dealing with in this letter. I want to take a little diversion here and deal with this passage in Ezekiel 16:46 through 51. I think this is a good example of what we are dealing with in the visible church today. And this is a good example of how people twist Scripture. And we need to be very discerning, um, specifically on this issue at this time, because this is the hot, hot topic in the church and outside. I guess it's kind of fitting I'm giving this message in the month of June that they um, think is Pride Month and it's Damnation Month for them if they don't repent. Just sad watching people glory in, in their own damnation. And instead of getting bitter towards them, what should we do? We should be faithful gospel proclaimers to them, loving them enough to tell them the truth of what God's word says. And this weekend, several of my friends were at pride rallies or pride parades or whatever they do. And they were there presenting the gospel to different ones. And in fact, I heard one um, one report that a man repented and turned to Christ and literally started taking stuff off of his body right there. That's the power of our God, isn't it? Well, let me continue because I want to deal with Ezekiel 16, 46 through 51 here. So they, the, what these false modern-day false teachers are doing is they're twisting Scripture to ju- justify their sexual sin, the problem is that many are being deceived by them. Let's look at this passage this morning, Ezekiel 16:46 through 51. And it says, Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways and committed their abominations, But as if that were too little, you also acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, plenty of food, and carefree ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. So they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So our first observation of this passage is that he's dealing with Israel's unfaithfulness. In the entire chapter, he indicts them for many sins, including sexual sin. God in his common grace provide plenty of resources for their lives, but there was no love for God and no love for others. Our second observation is that they did not submit to God's rule in their life. If they had submitted to God and his law, they, then they would have been humbled, caring for each other and giving of their resources for others' sakes. But this is just pointing out the opposite of what they were. And lastly in our passage, it says because of their arrogance, they committed abominations before the Lord. This certainly does not rule out the abominations of setting up false idols for worship, sacrificing their children to those false idols, but it also includes sexual sin. It is a huge leap to deny that sexual sin and specifically homosexuality did not play a huge role in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Arrogance against and rejection of Christ always leads to abominations. There is no neutral ground when one rejects Christ. They continue in their sins. Some displaying the depravity of their hearts more than others, but make no mistake that all sin will be punished that is not repented of. There's another example of how some are twisting the scriptures when it comes to homosexual sin. I think in 2021 or 2022 there was a documentary film titled 1946 the mistranslation that shifted a culture. A 21 year old seminary student wrote a letter to the translation team of the RSV version of the Bible alerting them of this supposed error in 1959. And this um, why it's called 1946 is because there was an update of the RSV and that's the first time they put in the word homosexual in the translation just to give you an understanding of why it's called 1946. His argument was that in 1 Corinthians 6:9 the word Paul used was not the word homosexual. Problem is that is exactly the word what the word means. First the word Homosexual is an English word, and yes, that word was never in the original language. The word Paul uses is two Greek words. He takes two words from Leviticus 18.22 and combines them together. The words are arson, meaning male, and koitai, meaning lying. So the combined word means men lying with men. This is consistent with what homosexual men do, but many have used this false premise to say that God is not against homosexuality. There simply is way too much evidence in Scripture to buy this lie. These modern-day people are just like these apostates in Jude. They refuse to submit to God's law. They twist the Scriptures in order to justify and live in their sinful lifestyles. And here in our letter, Jude makes it clear by his examples that any sexual behavior outside of a married man or woman is sin. Now get this straight, please. There is no such thing as a fornicator Christian. There is no such thing as an adulterer Christian. And there's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. Some may struggle in these areas, but the true christian is is the true christian does not find his identity in those things but actually in Christ and it's not their habitual pattern it's not their habitual practice and let me just say this too if you're struggling in any of these areas and you have not sought help from a mature brother or sister please make haste to do so immediately i can tell you I can tell you by personal experience that sexual sin will bring sexual sin will bring great consequences in your life, and God will discipline you because He loves you if you're in him. But take it seriously. I have men that actually text me when they're tempted so I can pray for them, so I can send them passages in the scriptures to encourage them. They're taking the fight seriously. But let's get back to the text before us. Jude, by using the examples of unbelieving Israel, the fallen angels, and the people of Sodom of Gomorrah, shows that these apostates demonstrate the same behavior. They were ungodly men, believing God, not believing God, presuming upon his grace, and rebelling against his order of things. They were a people with a licentious lifestyle, which was the fruit of an unregenerate heart. Jude wanted to assure this body of true believers that just as judgment came down on Israel, the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, so will the judgment be ex- executed on these apostates. Peter, in 2 Peter 2, 6-10, said this, And he, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the central conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despises authority. We see God's righteousness and his mercy and grace here. God surely will judge the unrighteous with eternal punishment, but those he has called and saved will be preserved, not because of your works, but because of him. We must never forget that it is he who causes us to be a holy people for his glory. God tells us how he designed this world and how it is to function. Anything outside of these instructions is not only dysfunctional, but if there is no repentance And turning from these sinful ways, eternal judgment is sure to follow. The illustrations we have gone through in our passage today should give us such an urgency to warn those in sin to flee from the wrath of God in repentance. Let me tell you, this is serious business. And it's the business that is the Lord's business. And he has commanded us to be about that business by being used in each other's lives and also by being those proclaimers to those that are lost but let me let me bring this to a close how about you do you take your sin lightly do you not see it as an affront to god do you have arrogance in your heart just as the men of sodom had do you presume upon god's grace Are you living in unrepentant sin? We do not have the right to live any other way than how Scripture instructs us to live. If we are His, then we must live according to His commands, and we always must keep in the forefront of our minds what Jude's title was, a bond slave of Christ. I am not my own. I do not own myself. He owns me. And he is the one that dictates how I must live my life for his glory. If we are... Oh, sorry. God commands us to fight the good fight of the objective faith. But that objective faith must be put into orthopraxy. That might be a new word for some of us. Orthopraxy means right belief results in right practice of that belief. If we are his, then we need to live a life pleasing to him in all areas of our life. And let us not forget true love. Because this word love has just been so bastardized in the church even. We just need to love people and accept them where they're at. No, no, no. You need to love people and turn them to Christ. But sometimes we can go from one extreme to the other. So we need to let us love one another in such a way that we do come alongside each other and be an encourager to practice all... Those 30-some one-anothers in the scriptures together, pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, correct one another. You can go look those up yourselves, but that's how we should be functioning as a body of Christ. In 1 John 2, 3-6, we read, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments... The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his commandments in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Let us make sure all we do is bathed in the love of our Lord and the love of others, These messages can be hard to take and we can err by becoming super critical people. We can put on our spiritual policeman hat and be harsh on people. We need to not be that way. We need to come alongside those that are weak and help them grow in their faith so that they can contend for the faith. Love is bringing each other to God's word and helping each other grow. And again, in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we read, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I would love to see that grow in our body of Christ here, that we would stop being so self-focused and that we would start focusing on others and loving them the way God has loved us. And that is, that's the engine that runs everything for us. It's because of his love for us. And that love comes into us and that love needs to be flowed out to each other. So in closing, we have seen these three examples in the Old Testament. The Israelites that grumbled, rejected God's way and and were destroyed. Then we saw the angels who abandoned their domain, position and purpose to do great evil. Then our last example was Sodom and Gomorrah, a population of ungodly ones that did not even fear the angels that came to Lot, but rather madly pursued their insatiable evil appetites. We have been warned through these passages to take our sin seriously and to watch over our souls. Satan knows that one of the biggest weapons against us and God is sexual sin. The evidence is clear that is the case because of how the attacks are coming against God's holy sexuality. Statistics from a survey showed that 98% of men and 73% of women reported internet porn use in the last six months when that survey was taken. If you don't think this is a problem within the church, another survey found that 68% of men and 33% of women that profess to be Christians view porn on a more regular basis than previously thought. If this is you... I call you to repent. Get in the word of God. Get some folks you can trust and be accountable to and conquer this devastating sin. These apostates Jude was dealing with were living in their sinful, unholy sexuality, and we must take these warnings seriously for our soul. We must not be conformed to the world, but rather transformed by God's word. Too many of us have been asleep and have become lukewarm in our relationship with the Lord. To the church in Laodicea in Revelations 3:15 and 16, God says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And in James 4, 4 through 10, it says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here is our call to action. Be busy about killing your pride and sin. Find your delight in Christ and find all your joy in him. We have been warned through these passages in Jude to not be like the apostates, so let's take that warning seriously. Maybe today you need to confess your sin and flee from it. Maybe you need to do some self-examination, not only about sexual sin, but those respectable sins that we do not think about as much, such as grumbling against God. But here is the good news. The psalmist, in Psalm 103, 10 through 13, says this, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And in 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We serve a God who is rich in mercy and grace and is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. If you are not in Christ this morning, my call to you would be, to come unto him all who are weary and heavy laden with your sin. And he will give you rest in forgiving your sins when you repent. I hope this week you will not forget these things and allow the Lord to use them to make you more holy for his glory. Let us be stimulating each other to a greater love of our Lord and encouraging one another to find him as our greatest delight forever. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have saved us and changed us. We thank you that you have humbled us. We thank you that you love us enough to discipline us, to turn from our sins, to live a life that is holy to you for your glory. Lord, today, if somebody in this room does not know you, we pray that they would turn from their sins and put their trust in you. And Lord, for those that are struggling in sin, feeling like there's no hope, that they just keep going to the same pig trough over and over, I pray that they would humble themselves first to repent of their sins to you and secondly to grab onto a brother or sister that can help them and encourage them in their walk with you. We thank you for our church. We thank you for our leadership. And right now we do pray that you would give Justin the words that we need to hear, that we would be attentive hearers and apply his word to our lives. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.